Cairo, Seattle. Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, Dan Harris. Was I supposed to prepare for this? Yeah. (laughs) Dan recently retired from ABC News, where he spent more than 20 years as a reporter, anchor for Nightline, and co-anchor of the weekend edition of Good Morning America. But I was introduced to Dan through his first book, 10% Happier. It's a memoir about how he, a scoffing skeptic, accidentally changed his entire life with meditation. It's actually one of my favorite books of all time, and I don't even meditate, but I want to. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to do it tomorrow. Maybe. Dan has since written a second book. He hosts the 10% Happier podcast, and he launched a 10% Happier meditation app. And Dan loves cookies, specifically insomnia cookies that are delivered warm to your door. I'll chat with founder and CEO Seth Berkowitz, who started the business when he was just 20 years old. Starting a business in college has so many benefits, probably the least risky time of life. And do your cookies come out cakey, dry? Do they spread when you bake them? Longtime baker Zoe Francois, host of the TV show Zoe Bakes and author of many cookbooks, including Zoe Bakes Cakes, joins the show to troubleshoot. And we'll learn a bit about her fascinating life. I grew up on communes and lived in cults and grew up with no sugar. But first, my conversation with Dan Harris. I am personally very excited to have you on because I have been a big fan of both of your books. And it's funny because I am very big on proper lending practices for books. Like I expect people to return mine and I always return (laughs) theirs, but I've pretended that I don't have this book. It's the only (laughs) book that I've never returned because I like to look back (laughs) in it for reference. So I'm breaking the law with your book. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it reminds me of Abby Hoffman wrote a book called Steal This Book. So um, maybe that, that should be the title of my next one. Dan's journey to meditation started in 2004 after one of the most embarrassing moments of his life. Dan had a panic attack on live television in front of millions of viewers. On um, an obscure news broadcast by the name of Good Morning America. Yeah, that sucked uncontrollably and even more embarrassing than not being able to breathe on television was what caused it, which was that I had spent a lot of time as an ambitious young reporter in war zones after 9-11. That, that resulted in my getting depressed, which resulted in my very unwisely self-medicating with recreational drugs, including cocaine. I wasn't high when I was on the air, but the shrink who I later consulted, pointed out that my drug use was enough to change my brain chemistry and make it more likely for me to freak out. So when I had the panic attack, that was a big moment for me where I realized I needed to make some change in my life. And I started seeing this psychiatrist very frequently. I did not immediately embrace meditation. Nobody suggested it to me right away. But I also, around the same time, was was assigned by my mentor at the time, Peter Jennings, who was a huge broadcast news legend, um, no longer with us, sadly. He assigned me to cover faith and spirituality, which I really didn't want to do because I was raised in the People's Republic of Massachusetts and was just not interested in this stuff at all. I I like to tell the joke about how I um, did have a bar mitzvah, but only for the money. So I was not (laughs) spiritually inclined. Anyway, I did this beat for a while and it turned out to be really interesting. And it was through covering 
spirituality that I stumbled upon self-help and meditation, which at first, in particular, the self-help I thought was really ridiculous. And I still do think many aspects of the self-help world, particularly that, you know, the power of positive thinking is, you know, pretty obviously unhelpful. But the meditation has been a, just a massive contributor to my well-being and changed my life. And what really got me over the hump with the meditation was just all of the scientific evidence that suggests that it can rewire your brain in lots of really helpful ways. It can change the brain regions associated with attention, with self-compassion, with compassion for other people, with self-awareness, with stress. And then also just studies that show it's really good for anxiety and depression. And so that's what allowed me to you know get over the hump and, and do this thing. I think the thing that I love so much about your book that I found so appealing is for someone who's not very, quote, woo-woo, your book is not a woo-woo guide to meditation. You know, it's completely practical. And you give all of these examples of where it's worked for everyone from football players to people who are in prison. It's not just something for people at yoga retreats. And also, I think for me as well, being a journalist for almost 20 years, like, you know, I can relate. I didn't cover war zones, but like to the life that you lived in a way. And you kind of just put it through this really practical lens. Yeah, I mean, that was my goal is, you know, I think meditation is much more socially acceptable now than it was when I put the book out eight years ago. And certainly more than when I first started getting interested in myself in like 2008, 2009. It's the first time in my life I was ever ahead of a trend. Uh, but at that time, it wasn't the type of thing you could easily admit to somebody that you were doing. And I think that's because meditation, you know, just been marketed very poorly often talked about in a very cliched way, uh, using, you know, stereotypical language or, or over-promising. And the science uh, really helped to, you know, I'm not saying that science is the only way to gauge meaning, but it is very meaningful, science is, evidence is, to many modern skeptics. And so as a way to, to use that language to get people interested in doing this thing that will make their lives better and improve the lives of anybody, you know, in your orbit. One of the things that sticks out to me that I think of from time to time from your second book was how, I mean, you almost became addicted to meditation. You were doing it so much. Can you talk about, you know, like at the height of it, how often you were meditating and kind of where you were at when you were doing it physically? Yeah, I was sighing because it was a bit of a ridiculous phase for me. I wouldn't say I was addicted. It wasn't that the meditation was so fun or yeah. enjoyable that I was addicted to it. But it was an example of my type A ambitious personality yeah. knowing no bounds. And so it was after I wrote 10% Happier and I and I realized I thought that book was going to be um, you know mildly embarrassing and then go away. But what happened was it became way more popular than I ever dreamt it kind of swallowed my life in in really good ways but also in some complicated ways you know i am wired for ambition and uh so as soon as the book came out and was successful i signed a deal to write more books and i started a podcast called 10 percent happier and i started a venture-backed startup company that we have a meditation app called 10 percent happier and so it was you know like this kind of compulsive empire building thing while i was still doing I had a full-time job at ABC News. Yeah. I was anchoring Nightline and the weekend edition of Good Morning America. I was traveling around the world to do investigative stories. It was too much. And and on top of all that, I got very interested in what meditation can do at higher dosages. So I started going on more meditation retreats, and I decided to do two hours a day because I got it in my head that that's what serious meditators did. That sounds more impressive or more ridiculous 
than it really was in in that I didn't sit and do two hours in one go or even one hour in one go most days. I would just kind of sneak it in into the interstices of the day, like just in between meetings or if I had a long car ride and I was in the back seat or on a plane ride. Yeah, I did that for years until I finally <laughs> realized that was maybe too much. <laughs> I want to talk about how meditation and mindfulness in general has influenced your eating life. Has it at all? For sure. My eating life, this is not a thing that a lot of guys talk about, but most of the guys I know are actually pretty focused on like their eating and exercise in a way that is, for me at least, it had a a compulsive feel. Hmm. In particular around sugar, I I would just binge it. Wouldn't be able to sleep and I'd feel like crap the next day. It was this kind of embarrassing, very uncool hangover. The Milky Way hangover. Yeah, the Milky Way hangover, the Oreo hangover. I would, you know, get into periods of time where I would rule out all sugar or rule out all carbs or exercise in a way that was... It wasn't like a friendly attitude toward my body. It was kind of trying to wrench it into shape. And I'm in no way against, you know, eating in a healthy way or exercising. I'm very much in favor of both. But it really helped me when I found this thing called intuitive eating. A friend of mine introduced me to a woman named Evelyn Tribole, who um, came on my podcast. Evelyn's whole thing is you listen to your body. Like, imagine that instead of like following somebody else's rules, you listen to what your body wants, eat what you want, when you want until you're full. At first I was like, no, this is crazy. Don't mean, don't you, you know, if I'm just going to eat Oreos all the time. She's like, no, if you really believe Mm. you can have as many Oreos as you want, there's no way you're going to eat a whole sleeve of them. I'm still really bad at it. And I still sometimes just the other night I ate, too much sugar and couldn't fall asleep and blah, blah, blah. But it happens way less now. And instead of eating until I feel vaguely sick, I can actually listen to the satiety cues. Yes. Yeah, it's hard because I think a lot of us weren't raised that way because, you know, the most famous example of like finish everything on your plate when you're a kid, which I know that a lot of parents now are stopping that habit because we're realizing that it's making kids kind of trained to overeat. Um, Was that the case for you growing up? It wasn't so much that my parents would force me to eat everything on my plate, but sugar was definitely outlawed. And so it became this forbidden fruit. We're doing a very different thing with my seven-year-old, our seven-year-old. When I say we're doing a very different thing, this was my wife's policy that I fought against. Now I basically claim it like it was my idea. But, um, you know, he can have dessert. We have a candy drawer, you know, in the TV room. And it's not this weird thing. As a consequence, he's not really like he likes dessert, but we don't get into big, long tussles about dessert. And so it, it doesn't occupy some weird space in his mind the way it does for me. So you've mentioned Oreos. Is that your suite of choice? What are your favorites? The thing that you think about the most and you crave the most? I mean, I love Oreos. I love ice cream. Uh, I love cookies, uh, sugar cookies. I'll have a snickerdoodle if it's available. Just donuts. To say the word snickerdoodle. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I do like to say that word. Um, donuts. Uh, so, yeah, I'm pretty uh, open minded when it comes to dessert. Mm-hmm. Since he started his mindful practice, Dan has also become a vegetarian. Yeah, I wanted to see if I could make myself more self-righteous. And once I adopted meditation, I was looking for ways to boost my annoying quotient. For a while, I was vegan for years. And I'm not uh, the type of vegan who like lectures people about being vegan, I cook bacon for my son and my wife is a committed carnivore. I'm, I'm not judgmental. But for me, I wanted to divest from the animal cruelty business. The pandemic broke me a little bit. I'm not eating bacon or anything like that, but I, I did want ice cream and pizza. So I do eat dairy now and eggs, yeah. but 
I don't feel great about it, but I do it anyway. I mean, really what's motivating me is just the animal cruelty stuff is just hard to swallow, so to speak. And so I'm a vegetarian now, something I never thought I would be. How does all this land with your family and your longtime friends and, you know, these colleagues that you work with for so long? Because you made a lot of big changes. And I know in the book you talked about how your meditation life did affect your marriage. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, on the meditation piece, uh, when I first started meditating, I was very annoying <laughs> and was really like lecturing my wife about how you should do this. She's a physician and had a very stressful job. And, and, and I think I really screwed up because... She has a bad attitude, a little bit of a bad attitude about it till this day. I mean, as a scientist, she really respects that the you know that the practice is beneficial, and she loves that I'm less of a jerk than I used to be. But the proselytizing, finger, yeah, well. the finger wag <laughs> yeah. was just not a good look. lot of vegan talk on the show lately. One thing that I've noticed after interviewing more than 100 celebrities for the show is that a lot of them are either vegan or Jewish. And in Dan's case, a little bit of both. We're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, Dan Harris's last meal and how a 20 year old college student started an extremely successful cookie delivery business still going strong nearly 20 years ago. Let's get to the question of the day. What would your last meal be? What would my last meal be? Was I supposed to prepare for this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know what the last meal would be, actually. Okay. And I did prepare for this. I knew the answer, and I temporarily blanked on it. <laughs> my last meal would be fresh pasta with butter and truffles. Ooh, oh, God. What shape of pasta? And is this from a restaurant or something you make at home? The restaurant that's coming to mind where I've had this dish many times is Babo in New York City. I believe they use fettuccine, three ingredients, fresh uh, homemade fettuccine, butter, and then truffles. It's so good. Are they still open? Yes. Okay. Is my understanding. I went there. I mean, they had a controversy because um, Mario got caught up in Me Too and uh, there's some pretty serious allegations against him. But I, I've been to the restaurant recently uh, within the last six months. So I believe it is still open. And why is that your last meal? Oh, it's so damn delicious. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm a little limited because I don't eat meat. And if you're looking for something extremely tasty and you're a vegetarian, it would be hard to go wrong with that. Am I allowed to add on like a dessert to this meal? Yeah, you can have as much as you want, however you want to fill it out. Mm. Then I would probably go for some warm cookies from Insomnia Cookies, um, which is another New York City institution where they make warm cookies and you can get them delivered to your house uh, at any time of the day, hence insomnia. They even make a cookie pie that I devoured one Oscar Sunday a couple of years ago with my wife. So that would be that would be the perfect final meal. The big cookie sounds like what do people say? Like every pizza can be a pan pizza if you put your mind to it. Like yes, you can order exactly. that big one and just be like, yes. it's just the one big cookie for me. <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite cookie from there? The sugar cookie. The sugar. I don't think I've ever had a warm yeah. sugar cookie. I feel like it's chocolate really chip good. gets all of the news with like the, you know, melty chocolate and everything. I, you know, chocolate does not agree with me. I was, well, if you have panic disorder, Caffeine is, is no bueno, yeah. and um, there's caffeine in chocolate. So if I eat chocolate, 
I get pretty jittery, can't sleep, et cetera, et cetera. So I love it, but it doesn't love me back. For his last meal, Dan Harris wants fettuccine with butter and truffles. I am actually salivating saying those words. And he wants warm sugar cookies from Insomnia Cookies. Insomnia Cookies has more than 200 locations across the country. But the company started with a college student named Seth Berkowitz. So it started in my college dorm room back in 2003 at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. I was living in a house with eight of my very good friends and... We were getting deliveries constantly. Back in 2003, the options were fairly limited, especially after about midnight. It was limited to two really well-known pizza companies, uh, one of which we ordered from at roughly 1.30 in the morning while playing video games. And there was a knock at the door and I opened up the door and it was Papa John's pizza for the third time that evening. <laughs> and I turned to my friends and I said, guys, this is the third time we've ordered this. Like, it's all we got. It's not enough. I want sweets. I love sugar. I'm going to be starting a cookie business next semester. And they said, shut up, sit down, play video games. We're not doing businesses right now. It's one in the, one in the morning. And really, Insomni was born from that moment. So you put your shoulder pads on and you grabbed your briefcase and you walked out and you became a businessman. Well, first, I continued my college education in the morning and then I started delivering cookies at night. So just to be clear, to make sure that I heard you right, you had Papa John delivered three times just in that one night? Yes. Yeah. Because okay. nine, nine people not paying attention to what the others were ordering. Seth was 20 years old, a junior in college, and he wanted to deliver a treat that would resonate with other college kids living away from home for the first time. It was kind of a nostalgic product and the warm cookie really fit the bill for me. And while I love to cook, baking wasn't necessarily something I was particularly skilled at. Uh, but I gave it a try off the bat and, and spent a bunch of time perfecting a recipe and turning it into the brand that it is today. I tried to be a little bit more creative in the beginning, and I gave customers the option to really order anything. So we had a bunch of different bases, and then they can mix in all these sorts of toppings. What were the different mix-ins back then? I mean, anything. I mean, we had gummy bears. We had Andy's Mints was a big favorite. Always, even till today, the chocolate chunk cookie was the classic and just was the one where people are ordering nearly half the time. Um, but we gave anybody, everybody, whatever they wanted to put in there. I think it was 35 different toppings at one point. It was a little too much. Did you have a staff from the beginning? Was it only you? What were the hours you were working? Were you making and delivering? Like, how? What were the logistics like in the early days? The first semester, just me. And I would go to class. And then I would drive out to the King of Prussia Mall and pick up ingredients. Come back, mix the dough, put it in the fridge, run to dinner, and then come back and turn on uh, the website and start accepting orders at 8 o'clock. And I was open from 8 to 2 only Monday through Thursday, which is a little bit silly in retrospect, given that Friday, Saturday, Sunday are three biggest days of the week by a very wide margin. But as a college student, I wanted my weekends. And then by the time senior year rolled around, expanded it to seven days, opened from 4 p.m. till 3 in the morning, which is more of a standard, although nowadays we open at 11 in most markets, and started hiring people to help support and also expand into other university markets within Philly. So that first semester, were you doing everything yourself? I mean, so much so that I'd forget to do things within the process. So I'd like take an order while driving, which obviously you shouldn't do. And I'd like mix dough while taking an order and forget to put in flour or eggs. Like I once baked brownies for over an hour. They just wouldn't bake because I forgot like a very important ingredient <laughs> and had to throw it out and start over. So the one man band approach was pretty entertaining, I think, for everybody involved for a semester. But it was really all I could handle. Even as a college student studying economics and history, Seth was serious about the business. 
He raised some capital the last semester of his senior year so he could expand Insomnia Cookies after graduation. Starting a business in college has so many benefits because it's just a lower risk environment. I mean, it really is. My parents were fortunately still helping me out. Um, it, it was if it didn't work out, I could always try something different. Um, it was it was a really, really great, great time to try it. I always recommend this to people who have that itch to go for it in college because it's it's probably the least risky time of life. I mean, I have a fourth kid on the on the way right now. I can't imagine the idea of starting something new right now. It's uh, that, that was the moment. Nearly 20 years later, Seth is still the CEO of Insomnia Cookies and 150 of their stores are located near universities. Because college kids will always want warm cookies delivered to their dorm room at 2 a.m. And then as they start to grow up, we start to build stores around where their lives were. So we have a lot of uh, city stores. We're starting to open suburban stores. Uh, and the delivery piece is really consistent throughout the brand. So while it's certainly steeped in 18 to 24, it starts to get older and older as the business starts to grow out into these, uh, these different demographic markets. And if you don't live close to a store, you can have cookies shipped anywhere in the country. You'll just have to warm them up yourself, like I've been doing. Tell me about your favorite cookies or the best-selling cookies. My favorite cookie is the double chocolate chunk. They're warm and melty and gooey. The texture is great. They're perfect. I mean, in my mind, they're perfect. The chocolate chunk is, is by far the most popular. Do you guys deliver milk, too? We do. Yeah. Cookies and milk. It's classic. Do you get cookie delivery ever or are you had enough cookies at this point? You'd think I would, right? 20 years of, of having cookies, but I got cookies delivered yesterday. Yesterday was my last order. I hope you like cookies as much as Dan does because we are not done talking about them. After the break, I chat with expert baker Zoe Francois about how to bake the perfect cookie. Zoe Francois is the author of many baking books, including Zoe Bakes Cakes and the forthcoming Zoe Bakes Cookies. And she has a show on the Magnolia Network called Zoe Bakes. I intended to jump right into Cookie Talk, but Zoe's life is so undeniably interesting, I went way off topic asking questions about her childhood. I started my baking passion as a kid. I grew up on communes and lived in cults and grew up with no sugar. We tap trees for maple syrup, you know, so sugar was honey, maple syrup, candy was dried fruit until I went to school and I discovered sugar and Twinkies and learned that it was all a lie. <laughs> Carob, Carob was not chocolate after no. all. <laughs> no. And so once I discovered sugar, I was obsessed. But if I wanted anything baked, I had to figure it out on my own because I didn't come from a baking family. My mom like didn't really understand what the oven was used for. So I taught myself how to bake in college. I wrote a business plan uh, in a business class to start a cookie company and then decided that would be way more fun than actually sitting in classroom. So I did that. And then fast forward, I was working at an ad agency and miserable and coming home and stress baking. And my husband actually suggested I go to culinary school. So off I went and ended up at the CIA. 
actually took my very first pastry chef job over the phone from there with Andrew Zimmern in Minneapolis. And that was almost 30 years ago. So I worked in restaurants and catering, and then I had my boys and the restaurant world is nuts. So I quit that to raise my boys and met somebody in a children's music class who turned out to be my co-author of eight books on artisan bread in five minutes a day. And then Andrew had always suggested that I would probably be on TV someday. And he finally convinced me to do a sizzle. We sent it in and um, I ended up several months later with a TV show on the Magnolia Network. So my journey has been a long one and exciting one and always surprising, even to me. I know we're supposed to talk about cookies, but I just have to rewind way back to the beginning of that story, <laughs> oh, okay. back to the commune and cults part of it. You just dropped it in so casually and kept yes. on going. Can you give me a little more detail? You know, when I was very, very young, my dad started a commune in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. This was when I was like two years old. We went to Woodstock and we were just part of the counterculture and living off the land and it's so funny because it just was my childhood. It doesn't seem unusual until I tell somebody and they're like, what? <laughs> and that was in Vermont. And then we moved to a cult out in California called the Don Horse Community. And a cult is really just a commune, but with a religious bent and a leader. But they're not all terrible. And the terrible things don't always happen. You say the word cult and people immediately think tragedy. <laughs> and it was bizarre. I'm not, don't get me wrong. It was a very strange, strange community. Part of the bizarre weirdness of this cult was that the guru had separated the biological children from their parents and gave them to surrogate parents to live with. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't that I never saw him, but it wasn't, we didn't live in the same house. But now I would love to know why, why they did that. Somebody had an idea. God only knows where it came from. Who knows? I'm looking this up. Is the leader's name Adi Da? Yes. Okay. That's a more recent name. When I was there, his name was Bubba Free John. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Bubba Free John. That was the cult portion of our show. Now on to cookies. My ideal cookie is maybe, probably, maybe most people's ideal cookie soft and chewy in the center and a little crisp on the outside. But I have struggled to create a cookie like this at home. Even when I've eaten a perfect cookie at someone else's house and they give me the recipe for that cookie and I follow the recipe to a T, somehow it still does not turn out quite as good. And I have wanted to know why for a very long time. So I'm going to throw a few classic cookie conundrums at Zoe and see if she can troubleshoot. So if a yep. cookie does turn out cakey, yes. what might have happened? Well, you can have too much flour, the wrong kind of flour. 
King Arthur flour has a much higher protein content to it. And so it absorbs more liquid and it's going to make things drier. And so when I write my recipes, I'm using gold metal flour because that's a lower protein. And so if your cookies are coming out cakey and a little bit drier than you want, just use a couple of tablespoons less flour. It can also be the way you're measuring. I am on like a super crusade to get people to be using a scale when they're baking because then it's always consistent. If you're doing uh, cup measures, you can have like a really wide range of amounts depending on the way you get the flour into the measuring cup. And so you may just be using way too much flour. I recently got a scale because of sourdough bread baking, and now I can't go back. And it's also very (laughs) fun. It makes me feel like I'm a scientist or something (laughs) using the scale. It's more consistent. It actually is easier. You know, and really, Americans are the only bakers in the world who don't use a scale. So let's say you're a holdout and you're not going to get a scale. What is Mm -hmm. the best way, the most standard way to measure flour in a measuring cup? There is no right or wrong way. It totally depends on the author of the recipe. So you kind of have to know, like whenever I get a new cookbook, I look in the ingredients section or the tips and techniques section and figure out, do they use a spoon and sweep, which means you're spooning the flour into the measuring cup and then sweeping the top clean with a knife? Or do they use the scoop and sweep where they put the measuring cup right down into the bin of flour and then sweep it because spoon and sweep, you're going to get less flour than if you use scoop and sweep. And then sometimes what I do is I'll like pound the cup on the table, which means I can then Ah! add more flour, which is probably a huge mistake. Um, It's not optimal. Okay. (laughs) You may end up with a very dry batter or dough or whatever it is that you're making. And then on top of that, if you're using a higher protein flour, it's it can get really dry. Another scenario, some people get a cookie that's really spread out. And so it ends up mm-hmm. being kind of a crunchy cookie. What might have yes. happened there? If you're using butter, butter tends to spread a lot when it hits the oven. Whereas if the cookie has some shortening in it, it's going to spread less It's also the type of sugar. Uh, White sugar uh, will melt and spread more than brown sugar. I mean, there's so many factors. But the other thing is, are you scooping that cookie dough straight out of the mixing bowl and putting it onto the baking sheet and baking it right away when it's warm? Or are you chilling the dough first? Because that will give the dough some time to sort of absorb the liquid into the flour. And so it won't spread quite so much. The longer you can chill it, uh, the more effect that's going to have. So the less spreading you're going to get. Sometimes I even freeze the dough. I had a cookie epiphany a couple of years ago. A friend Mm -hmm. of mine who's a cookbook author, she makes amazing chocolate chip cookies. They're the best homemade chocolate chip cookies I've ever had. And Mm, so I asked for the recipe and I made it and they didn't turn out like hers. They were Mm -hmm. cakier. And then when she was coming out with a new cookbook, she had me test them for the book. And again, it didn't turn out. Well, it turned out that the issue was that I don't use a stand mixer. 
I had no idea that that made a difference because when I read a recipe for making cookies, I just think, well, I just am going to use what I use. You know, it's like I'll use my Mm -hmm. little hand mixer thing. Think about how many people are at home just using a wooden spoon. That's how I did it as a kid. Oh, me too. But most recipes either don't specify or if they do say put it in your sand mixer, if you don't have one, you just go, oh, I'll use something else. But when I told her that, she said, oh, well, I have to change the recipe then to make a version Mm -hmm. for a hand mixer. And she made some adjustments and I wish I could remember what they were. Um, (laughs) But that was huge for me. And I imagine Mm. a lot of home cooks might run into that and not know it because I don't think everybody has a big expensive stand mixer. Yeah, absolutely. The one thing that a stand mixer does so beautifully is incorporate air because it has the strength to whip a lot of air into something. Whenever you whip a lot of air into butter or eggs, you're trapping the bubbles into it, which creates steam and it makes it all rise in the oven. You can do that by hand, but it takes some effort and some muscle and time Um, And so people tend to mix things less when they're doing it by hand. And so the texture and consistency will really change if you are not using a stand mixer. Sometimes, not just with cookies, with all desserts, I pull down the sugar because I'm afraid that it's going to be too sweet. Is that going to change the texture? Is that going to not get me the results that the baker intended? A (laughs) hundred (laughs) percent. Yes. Yes. Reducing the amount of sugar in a cookie, the cookie could either not be the right texture or it's not going to have the flavor sort of complexity that uh, was maybe intended. But again, does any of that matter if you like it? It really just doesn't. It's like if you make the cookie with half the amount of sugar in it and you love it, then I think that's success. It doesn't matter what the recipe writer said. You've just taken it and made it your own. But I'm not getting it what I want. <laughs> uh, well, if, you're not, if it's not coming out and it's not satisfying you, what I always would suggest is make the recipe as it was written and then take off from there. I sometimes test a recipe 30 or 40 times. So it's not by accident that I've come up with this recipe. Okay, I'm going to do a little cookie speed round with you real quick. Mm. What is your favorite homemade cookie that you make? Oatmeal raisin. Ooh, that's controversial. I know, I know. It always just blows me away when people don't like oatmeal raisin cookies. It's a whole family favorite here. What is your favorite cookie that you get from a bakery somewhere outside of your house? Oh, that's so rough. That's tough. Um, Okay. I'm going to go with like a chewy molasses. Whenever I go to a bakery, I order everything. Oh, like I can't. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Like when I go out to a restaurant, I order every dessert because I can't not know what they're up to. (laughs) What is your favorite beverage to accompany a cookie? Oh, milk. Yes, milk. So many adults (laughs) don't like milk anymore. So I love it. I don't. I don't even drink milk. It's the one and only time that I will is with a cookie.
Let's get back to Dan Harris. Something I'm really, really interested in is a note that you sent. Your parents had a food ritual called gripe session when you were a kid. What is this? I have a feeling I'm going to like this. My, I, I'm not sure it was like a, the best thing to do, but maybe it was. I, I spent a lot of time with my cousin. She has a daughter my son's age. We were at dinner the other night and she was telling me how they do this thing where they list three things they were grateful for during the day. And I think there's a lot of evidence to show that that actually can have a lot of salutary effects on, yeah. on the mind. But my parents used to do this thing called the gripe session where you were allowed to just let loose and complain about something over dinner. And I think it was a goal was to let us get it out of our system. Mm. And I remember enjoying it. It was like a, it was like the sanctioned zone to, you know, let loose. And it wasn't always about like complaining about your parents. I mean, although sometimes it was, it was just something that was annoying during the day. We got to say it. Was that every night at dinner, you would have a gripe? I don't know if it was every night at dinner. Because that seems like a lot. It's just like every dinner, it's like lay it out and you're having to listen to these rants every single night. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't recall it being, you know, extended arias of, you know, aggression or anything like that. I recall it being more like everybody having a, a minute or two to vent their spleen and then uh, it was over. It reminds me, a friend of mine is doing a similar thing with her kids, but with swearing. So they have a designated swearing hour. They're in elementary school and her son kept swearing. And so she was like, "Okay, we're consolidating this. You have this 10 minutes and you go in this room and you can swear as much as you want, but no more the rest of the day. And that's good. It's interesting because her daughter won't even do it. She has no interest. But her son, who when she first started doing this was seven, would just go in there and basically sound like someone with Tourette's, you know, like the whole (laughs) 10 minutes he would use it up which I thought was very funny and it was effective. It's, really, it's clever. I mean, I, it's so funny. My son, who's also seven, turned to me the other day and it was so weird to hear him say this word. He's like, dad, what's an <laughs> just like, oh, my God. Uh, so he's really in the stage. He's very curious about it. We have a rule where he and I can talk about it, but I don't want and I'll teach him words. Yeah. But he cannot teach other kids. That's a good rule. And that one's hard, too, because it's like there's two meanings. You're like, OK, there's the physiology and then there's kind of the slang. Oh, believe me, we covered yeah. uh, all <laughs> aspects. of the, We went we got deeply etymological <laughs> and scatological. And that was Dan Harris's last meal. You can check out 10% Happier in the form of his podcast, the meditation app, and two books. He is such a clear, excellent writer and such a great storyteller. Thanks to Seth Berkowitz, CEO of Insomnia Cookies. You can find a link in the show notes to order. I think the warm snickerdoodle cookies were my favorite. And thanks to Zoe Francois. When I was in California and living in this cult, I was in a public school and I would come to school with these crazy lunches. I mean, this is the 1970s, 24 different grain breads that we baked ourselves and sprouts or home crushed peanut butter and banana sandwiches. And I just stuck out. I could not assimilate with this kind of a lunch. And one of the teachers recognized that I was being like scrutinized for what I was. Now today, everybody would be making that for their kids, but not in the 70s. This is like Wonder Bread, you know? 
And so he used to buy me school lunch so I would fit in. Whoa, the teacher would. That's such I a good know, story. That's so interesting. It was so interesting and I was so grateful. But the truth of the matter now that I look back at it as an adult was that he was really doing it so that I would tell him stories about the cult. Oh. And I don't know if it was out of concern or out of curiosity. You can watch Zoe Bakes on the Magnolia Network and look out for Zoe Bakes Cookies next year. This episode was produced by Laura Scott and me, theme music by Prom Queen. And if you like the show, tell a friend. You can also rate and review Your Last Meal on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. If you're not already, follow along on Instagram. I'm Hello Rachel Bell, B-E-L-L-E. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. I'm going to open this door and let this cat out of this room. That's so funny. My cat just came in and is starting to meow too. Yes. They must sense each other. Yes.